Are we ready? I hope you had a good day today. Whatever kind of day you had, we're going to have a good evening together in the Word of the Lord. So if you had a good day, thank the Lord for it. And if you had a bad day, thank the Lord it's over. Put it in the rearview mirror. Deal with it. And let's move on. Our subject is the judgment seat of Christ. In three nights, we will do what we can with this subject. And sometimes I'm going to give you scriptures that really in themselves would be the subject of a whole evening study. And you're going to have to go and read them. So I'm going to give you the material, and then you're going to have to do some of the work. The most important thing to remember as we study any subject in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the the apostle tells us that when the, the prophet speaks, he says, they speak for edification and exhortation and comfort. There's three things we want to get out of any study of the word of God. Edification means we want to be built up, we want to be strengthened, we want to be prepared. Edification. Exhortation. It comes from a word that means to come, to get beside someone and call them to action. Exhortation. And comfort. And all three of those things are in this subject, the judgment seat of Christ. So when we have the scriptures that give us the general layout and the definition of what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be and when and where and all of those things, we want to make sure we get all the information right so that we're edified. We want to make sure that our minds are instructed according to what the scriptures say. And then we want to apply it. That's exhortation. And if we are applying it, We want to find comfort in that. All three of those things are there. So let's get started. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're going to begin by reading a few of the key verses, key passages. There are many passages in the scripture that deal with this subject. Some of them I'm I'm sure you will realize, you'll recognize right away. And others, perhaps, when we read them, you'll say, I didn't realize that was saying anything about the judgment seat of Christ. But I hope you will before our studies are over. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, the word of the Lord says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And now we're going over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three is what we would probably call the central passage, the central text 
And when we say that, uh, that's just a way of saying in Bible study parlance that the text that contains the most information about the subject that you're studying. You have a verse here and two verses there, but at some point there's some text or portion that's longer and that contains more information about it. And that we call the central text on the matter. And this is probably it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, going to begin reading in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And now, over in Second Corinthians, chapter 5. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore... The terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we bow in your presence and we give thanks for your word and we give thanks that you have taken the time and the effort and the concern to give to us these and so many other texts that describe to us exactly what you want and what is waiting for us in the future. We thank you. For your word, and we pray that you will help us to receive it, that it will come into our hearts these evenings of our studies together, that the word of God will come in like that seed planted on good ground, and that it will bear fruit in our lives. And so we commend it to you, and we commend ourselves to you as we remember that we can do nothing without you, Lord. We recognize that, we remember it. You are the vine, and we are the branches. And so we call upon you and we confess our need of the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. And we pray, we ask you to do that which is your right to do, to touch any area of our lives. To make any change, any modification, to throw out anything that is not pleasing to you. To bring in anything that you desire to make our lives more pleasing to you. So that we might stand one day with joy 
before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we commend our time, our studies, and our lives to you. And we ask that each of us, in his or her own special way, might know the presence and the ministry of God in his heart during these studies. For we pray it in the name and for the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I have a poem. Sometimes I carry uh, poems in my Bible just to use for illustrations. And sometimes I have ones in there that are just for my personal motivation. I'm going to share one with you that's for my personal motivation. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way. And I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though he loves me still? He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, robbed of all but his grace, while my memory runs like a hunted thing down paths I cannot retrace. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me and mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. I don't know if you've ever considered this. It's better to consider it when you're young. But it's better to consider it tonight than tomorrow. God has a plan for your life. The school counselors have a plan for your life. Society has a plan for your life. Madison Avenue has a plan for your life. The sports world, the entertainment world, the financial world. So many hearts and so many minds have plans for your life. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, you have a plan. You have likes and dislikes. You have things that are your preferences. And you have dreams. Some maybe you have shared with others and some maybe you never have. Things that you would like to do. Places you would like to go. A kind of person you would like to be or you wish you were. All of us have these kind of things. But the great thing for the Christian is to know what God wants him to be. Not what I want me to be. Not what my parents want me to be. Not what society wants me to be. But what God wants me to be. Now sometimes those things might coincide. But so often they do not. God has a will and a plan for our lives. And one day, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You are going to stand there. I am going to stand there. You're going to be standing there just right before the Lord, just as clearly as you can see me and I can see you now, and more clearly than that. And you're not going to be in a part of a crowd. It's going to be a personal interview with him. Each one will receive from the Lord, a judgment. 
an analysis of his life and service. Now, right at the beginning, I want to dispel any confusion or doubt that anyone might have in their minds. In the scriptures, there are different kinds of judgments that take place at different times in history. And we are not talking here about the judgment that some people refer to, and we do too, as the great white throne. That great white throne judgment when the dead are raised and stand before God and, and they open the books and they judge them. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. That passage in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 that speaks of the great white throne judgment is speaking of a judgment that will, that will come upon all people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It will be the judgment of what we call the wicked dead. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books will be opened and they will be shown their sins. And then they will be sent to the place where all unforgiven sinners go. It is the happy knowledge, or should be, of every Christian born again by the grace of God. that He will never have to stand before that horrible great white throne and have his sins judged. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. Are we agreed on that? So we're not talking when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, we're not talking about the judgment of our sins. Our sins, those of us who have believed in Christ, our sins were judged at Calvary. Our sins were judged in Christ. He, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the Christian, the one who puts his trust and his faith in Jesus Christ, finds that Christ bore his sin on the cross, And God took, when he believed in him, God took Christ's righteousness and clothed that believing person, that believing sinner. He clothed him with the righteousness of Christ. And he will never again bring up the question of sin. That sin will never again be mentioned. There will be no future judgment seat to deal with that sin. Because that sin is under the blood of Christ. And we're clear on that. But now I want to remind you what Ephesians 2.10 says. Because there are many people, and in the assemblies I'm afraid sometimes we have this also, people who are are very clear about Ephesians 2.8 and 9, about that old monster works and that old thing about salvation for works. And we've got it so clear that works have nothing to do with it that we forget that works have something to do with it. Not with salvation. But they play a very important part in the Christian life. And I personally am of the opinion that among Christians, we should never read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without including verse 10. But there are a lot of people that I have known who can tell you instantly what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, but they cannot tell you what verse 10 says. Look up here. Don't look at the text. Look up here. (laughs) And all those people who are laughing, you know why they're laughing. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Got that? We're not saved by works. Listen carefully. But we are saved for works. Our works have nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, nothing to do with our salvation. But they have everything to do with our Christian life. And there are a lot of people in evangelical churches around the world today who have not caught this fundamental, essential, biblical truth of the place of works and service in the life of the believer. We live in a generation more than ever before that lives to please itself, to be entertained. We, as we were saying the other day, the consumer-oriented society. And people bring this into the church. I'm, I'm reading another one of uh, Mr. MacArthur's books. I understand you saw his um, series, Does the Truth Matter? anymore. Excellent series, and thank you for giving it to us, and we're watching it. We're not all the way through it in my house, but we're getting there. Listen to this quote. This is from a book called Fool's Gold. Our Christian culture has become so saturated with a consumer mindset that such self-centeredness is no longer perceived as a vice. The poison of pride coupled with a perilously inadequate view of God and his church, beckons 21st century believers to promote their own self-worth. The result is a church full of egotistical, pragmatic, and individualistic Christians who are interested in serving themselves more than in serving God. But the Bible calls us to do just the opposite. To deny ourselves. When will we learn the lesson? I hope with all my heart and I pray that we learn it before we go and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Salvation is by grace. Therefore, because our works, our sins were dealt with by Christ on the cross and they are under his blood forever. No Christian will ever stand before God and be judged for his sins. Jesus took that judgment. The blow that was destined for me fell on him. And it's gone. But every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us here tonight. And every Christian everywhere else in the world. Every individual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will face a judgment. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I remember <clears throat> when my younger brother, our our younger brother, I should say, died in a car accident. And he was buried the day before his 21st birthday. And I have buried people younger than that. People younger than some of you sitting out here tonight. You don't know how long you have to live. 
when my younger brother died, when our younger brother died, he was there in the funeral home, of course, his body. And I was in the Air Force in Texas, and I flew in. We flew in, my wife and myself. And I remember going to the funeral home in a state of shock. And I was a new Christian. I had been saved in January of that year. I grew up in the church. Many of you know my testimony. I had a lot of good teaching, a lot of good opportunities. And as a young person, I threw them all away. I was a fool. And God was patient. And I was saved when I was 24. Until that night, I was going to hell with a good knowledge of the Bible. Well, a good knowledge, a fair knowledge of the Bible. I'd been to Bible conferences. I'd been to church meetings. I'd even gotten up and said a few things in a meeting a couple of times. I'd given out tracts to other people. But I wasn't saved. I had an agenda for my life. And it included a little space penciled in for God on Sundays. Anybody here tonight have an agenda like that? God doesn't want your free time. God doesn't want your leftovers. He wants your life. He wants all of it. Well, I came to that realization one evening, January the 5th of 1975, when I turned my life and not just my intellectual belief in the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. When I turned my life I let go of the reins, and I turned it all over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved me that night when I put my faith in him and stopped trying to add him to my curriculum, to my plan for my life. That was January. In August of that year, our brother died. And I stood there before that coffin and wept uncontrollably for two reasons. Now, this might not seem like a very good uh, motivational illustration to some of you. This is hard to start with. But I believe in laying all the cards out on the table right at the beginning. And this is the way it is. First of all, because I love my brother, I never thought anything like that would happen in our family. I I never had seen death come so close. It was a shock to me. I could not deal with the fact, with the reality of it. It just sent my emotions and my mind reeling. And I thought about the fact that you know how young people are, especially three teenage boys growing up in the same family and fighting and quarreling and the competition one with another and so on and so forth. And we, ne- we never really said to each other, I love you. Because that's not a guy thing, you know. Boy, was I sorry that night when I stood there. Boy, did I wish 
I could have him back, even if it was only just for five minutes, to tell him what I never told him. I couldn't remember the last time I told him. And I made myself a promise that I wouldn't make that mistake again. The other thing was, I was a new Christian, eight months old in the Lord. And as I stood there and thought, many things went through my mind, and one of them was this. What if it had been me? What if it had been me? I was 24 years old. I heard the gospel all my life. I had read the Bible and had it taught to me all my life. I had been to church all my life. What if it had been me? I was 24 years old, and if I had died that day, and that had been me standing there before God, I would have gone just as empty and naked as anyone can ever go. I would have had nothing, nothing of eternal value to show for 24 years of life. 24 years Each of them made up of 365 days. Each of them made up of 24 hours. Each of them made up of 60 minutes full of 60 seconds. 24 years and nothing to show, nothing to give God for the 24 years that he gave me. Nothing. And I remembered a hymn we used to sing. A lot of these hymns have been taken out of the hymn books anymore. As we prefer a different style of hymn now that makes us feel good about ourselves. And that hymn was, Must I Go and Empty-Handed. I thought about that. And I made the Lord a promise. Standing there in that funeral home, that place of death. And despair, I made the Lord a promise. And I made it with all seriousness of heart. And I have thought about it all through life since then. A life is a terrible thing to waste on things that don't matter in eternity. And I promised the Lord that if he gave me life, I would use it for him and not for myself. And that I wouldn't live like all the people in the world around me that I had lived like until then. Whose lives would mean nothing in eternity. And this is a great truth that we find in the word of God. That I was beginning in a very small way to learn there that day. A truth that's found in the book of Romans in chapter 6. Where we are told a truth that is not often emphasized in evangelical circles anymore. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not? That to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are. To whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Look down at verse 18. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. 
I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in the things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. And we all know the next verse, but these are the verses that are often not known and not thought about. That the scriptures teach us very clearly that we are not free to do as we please. And I am not going to budge one inch or one millimeter on this point. We are not free to do as we please. If you want to be free to do as you please, you have to throw off the yoke of Christ. But Christ says to those who would believe on him and be his followers, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We are not free to do as we please. We often use the word freedom, and Americans love the word freedom. And they strut the word freedom, and they brag on the word freedom. And we think we're free because we have 28 choices of soft drinks in the grocery store and 198 choices of deodorant, one man said. And we think that's what freedom is all about. I can pick all the different movies I want, and I can, anything I want, I'm free to do it. There are some freedoms that are good. To live a quiet and peaceable life. To be able to preach the gospel. To be able to serve the Lord and glorify him. But the greatest freedom in the scripture is to be free from sin. Free from the service, from the servitude, from the slavery of sin. And he says in verse 18, see, that's the half that we like. He says, being then made free from sin, and we'll just stop there. And isn't that good? The believer is free from sin. You're not chained anymore. And until you are really a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not free from sin. You can quit smoking, but you can't quit sinning. You hear what I'm saying? You can quit drinking, but you can't quit sinning. And don't think for one instant that because you reformed some area of your life, that that means that you're now going to heaven. That's what we say in Spanish, a pura locura. That's absolute craziness. You think just because somebody goes out and takes one of these Seventh-day Adventist uh, week-long courses in how to stop smoking, that therefore they're going to heaven because they quit smoking? Free from sin. There's only one way to be free from sin. If the Son shall make you free, then you shall be free indeed. But that freedom is only found in faith in Jesus Christ. And until then, you can't quit. You can't. You can't quit sinning. Just like an orange tree that we have many of in Seville, can't quit bearing oranges. You can go out there with your knife or your scissors or your pruning shears and cut all the fruit off you want to. 
And the next bearing season, it'll all come back out again. Because on the inside of that tree, the sap in the core of that tree is an orange tree. It is the life of an orange tree. And sooner or later, that's what it's going to put out. You see, God doesn't just go around cutting off the fruit. He says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. God deals with the inside. There's a new life, a new nature on the inside. And we're free. We're made free from sin. You don't have to sin. You have a choice. You have liberty. But you became the servants. The second half of the verse. No, they don't know that part. You became the servants of righteousness. Verse 22. Being made free from sin and become servants to God. And that word servant is the word that means slaves. And you can like it, or you can not like it, but you're going to have to deal with it because it's the truth from God's Word. God saves those who trust in Jesus Christ and makes them free from sin and from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, not from the presence of sin. From the presence of sin when we get to heaven. We still live in a sinful world, and we still have that sin nature in us. But we also have the new nature. We are not bound to sin. Being made free from sin and become servants to God. Now this is my point. This is the point. I'm spending a lot of time on the freedom and the service. But this is the point. That if God has declared so plainly, so clearly in his word that we are his servants. That we are to serve him. And that we are to yield our members to him as instruments, as tools of righteousness, that that's what my body is for, is to to be given to Him, to serve Him and to glorify Him, that if I am His servant, then who am I to plan my own life? And I'll ask you this question tonight, and you don't have to answer me, but you remember one day you'll have to answer the Lord. How do you know that what you're doing is God's will? Did you consult the Lord about your career? Have you consulted God about the plans you've made for your life? Would you be willing to take all of that and put it on the altar before the Lord and say, What do you want me to do, Lord? It's your, it's the life you gave me. And one day you're going to review it at the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, I want to be able to stand before you and say, Thank you, Lord, for showing me how to live in your will. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to me, as the psalmist says, Make your footsteps my path. I don't want to get to heaven and find out that I, I lived a nice life and I, I filled it with activities, even in the church, activities, but it wasn't God's will. I was a success in the business world, in finance, in sports, in whatever. And I maintained my Christian testimony. But then I get to heaven and find out at the judgment seat of Christ that that wasn't God's plan for my life. That I got my plan for my life from watching what people do on television. And from watching what people do in the movies. And from listening and looking at school and all the unsaved people. And I got caught up in the current of the world like a little leaf in a stream. And I got swept along. And I spent my life. I didn't invest it. I spent it. A life is a terrible thing to waste.
And if the Lord says so clearly here that we are his servants, you may be sure you have God's word on it that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will review, analyze, judge our service. Salvation is by grace through faith and there is no judgment of the believer's sins, but there is judgment of the believer's service. And that day is coming. And as I look around, I don't see a lot of indications that we really believe that that's going to happen. I listen to the way people talk and it sounds to me like Nobody believes what the Lord said. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment. And the the choices that we make and the things that we spend our money, our time, our energy on. Years ago, Billy Graham said that God was going to have to judge America as a nation that spent more money on dog food than it did on missionaries. And that was before they got these Petco and all these other huge and pet hospitals and pet psychologists. I'm not kidding. I know it's funny, but you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Take your dog in and find out why he's depressed. You don't want to know what they used to do with dogs when they got depressed back in, back where I came from. <laughs> came back in the house with just a collar. <laughs> now that's mean and I'm not saying anybody go do that to their dog, but I'm just saying we've lost focus. And it's true, the enemies Uh, of the nation and of the West have correctly assessed us. They have analyzed us. We have become soft and selfish and lazy and unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to pay any high price for anything. In many cases, they have correctly assessed us. We live in a decadent society, given more and more to hedonism, The worship of entertainment and pleasure. Where we pay people who play games in public for the entertainment of others millions of dollars. And people who work hard on a factory floor producing a product that everyone needs. We pay them barely enough to pay the rent. There's something immoral about that, isn't there? Well, that's the way the world is. But that's not the way the Christian has to be. That's not the way the Christian has to be. Return of Christ to take us out of this world is the blessed hope of the church. The rapture is a a consolation and a joy to the heart of the believer. But the judgment seat of Christ is a spur to the conscience. That's what it is. A spur to the conscience. I want you to think with me for a few minutes now about the background And the meaning of the judgment seat. I don't know if you realize it. But it's a concept that goes as far back as the book of Kings. First Kings. 
chapter 10. First Kings chapter 10, verse 18. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps, and on the top of the throne was round behind, and there was stays on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays, and twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other side upon the six steps. There was not any like it made in any kingdom. This is Solomon's throne that he sat upon to judge the affairs of the nation. This was the judgment throne, the tribunal or the judgment seat of Solomon. Now let's go over to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife said unto him, sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. This is Pilate, and Pilate is sitting on his judgment seat. The Greek word is bema. You can live a normal life without knowing the Greek word. But somebody out there thinks they know a little Greek, so I'll tell them a little Greek. I know a little Greek, too. His name is Alexis. If you had a concordance of Greek words, and the concordance, the Greek concordance of the New Testament, you would go through it looking for the place where the word bema appears, and then you would have all the places where in the original language of the New Testament that word appears. And this is one of them. The Bema, the tribunal, the judgment seat of Pilate. Now, Pilate, he wasn't there having a, a friendly conversation with Jesus and, and uh, discussing, uh, hearing a few stories about things that happened to him in his years of ministry. They weren't having a working lunch together. The judgment seat was a place where serious issues were reviewed And judgment was pronounced. It was not an everyday thing to go to the judgment seat. And most people hoped they never would. It's kind of like the years of the draft. You hoped your number never came up. Acts chapter 12. Verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them, or a speech unto them. Now, that word throne is that word translated. It's the same word in the original, translated here throne, or in, in other translations, not the King James. It may be translated judgment seat. And if so, it is the correct translation of that word because it's the same thing. Pilate had a judgment seat. Solomon had a judgment seat. Herod had a judgment seat that he sat on. And from there he spoke to the people. He gave an oration. He made a speech. And from there he pronounced judgment about matters. It was a serious thing. In this case, the judgment seat of Herod on this particular day turned out to be a judgment for him. 
But we won't go into that because that's not our purpose tonight. Acts chapter 18 and verse 12. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, Look ye to it, I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. The judgment seat was a place for serious matters. And this was a serious matter to everyone except Gallio. He didn't want anything to do with it. He wouldn't judge it. But that's what the judgment seat was for. And people went to a judgment seat when there was a complaint, when there was an issue, when there was a problem, when something needed to be reviewed and decided, when someone's service was called into question, when someone's deeds or behavior. Chapter 25. Acts chapter 25 and verse 6. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. This is the judgment seat of Festus. Festus, who's a governor, who's going to review and judge Paul's case now. He sat upon the judgment seat. And he's going to review all that incident, what happened in Jerusalem, the mob and how they assaulted Paul and the Romans took him prisoner and all of this has been waiting for so long and now he's going to bring it and review it. In Acts chapter 25 and verse 10, Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged to the Jews I have done no wrong as thou very well knowest. Caesar has a judgment seat and Paul appealed to it. As a Roman citizen, it was his right. When he felt that men were being unfair to him in his judgment, it was the right of any Roman citizen in matters like that to appeal to Caesar. Their case could be taken to Caesar and reviewed by him. Now, of course, one would not appeal lightly to Caesar. For if one's case were taken to Caesar and one were found to be wrong, One would wish he never saw Caesar's face. Solomon had a judgment seat. Pilate had a judgment seat. Herod had a judgment seat. Gallio had a judgment seat. Festus had a judgment seat. Caesar had a judgment seat. And none of those are anything compared to the judgment seat of Christ. Called in Romans 14.10 the judgment seat of God. But it's all the same because Christ is God. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The tribunal is not a place for the exchange of opinions or debate or friendly chatter. It's a serious place. Not really for conversation. It's for examining and judging people for their works. Where behavior is reviewed and judgment is passed. 
And that, my friends and brothers and sisters, is where we are headed. And some of us are not ready. But ready or not, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what about the time? That's the background and the meaning of the judgment seat. But what about the time of the judgment? Come over with me to the book of Luke, chapter 14, the book of Luke. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And we don't have time tonight to go into the different resurrections, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. But the first resurrection is the resurrection of the just. There are two resurrections. Everyone will be resurrected. But the first resurrection applies only to believers. The second resurrection comes at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. When all, as it says in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and they're all going to be raised. And that's called the resurrection of judgment or the resurrection of condemnation. They will be raised up and reconstituted in a whole person, body, soul, and spirit before God, and they will be judged. But the first resurrection is the resurrection, he says here, of the just. Of the believers, of those who have been justified, of the saved, of the righteous, of those who have been declared righteous because of their faith in Christ. We're going to be raised. The sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will be raised. Those of us who are alive and remain will go up to be with him. At the resurrection of the just, then, there will be a time of recompense. He says here there's going to be a reward. You'll be rewarded. The poor and the maimed, they can't reward you for the kind things that you do to them. But the Lord has it in mind. The Lord remembers it. And God is not unrighteous that he should forget your work or labor of love. God does not forget or overlook. And so there will be a recompense. There will be a reward at the resurrection of the just, he says here. This is the time of it. But it's not in this life. And this is the thing we must remember. Not in this life. In the resurrection. And brother, sister, when the resurrection takes place, it's going to be too late to serve the Lord. All opportunities for service will be over. Out there on the book table, we have... uh, Some books that we brought because we thought they go very well with this subject. And one of them is this one. Only one time around. You only get to spend your life once. And he uses this phrase. You know, it came from the advertising world. You only go around once in life. Grab for all the gusto. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. But if the resurrection of the just is when we're going to receive our recompense, 
our reward, let's have it clear that the judgment seat of Christ does not take place at any time in this life. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have a little preview and see how things are turning out, you know, an interim review, so that then we have time, like in the second half of life, to fix the things that, but there's no interim review. You have a daily opportunity. God has given to each of us in his word. He has taken the time and the trouble to give us in his word and to tell us in his word the things that are going to come into under scrutiny at the judgment seat of Christ. He's told us all about it right here. Some of us have read it and some of us haven't. Some of us caught it and some of us didn't. But I doubt if uh, in this church, particularly that's well taught on prophetic matters, I doubt there'll be anybody here that will have much of an excuse. We will say, well, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of that. At the resurrection of the just, God is going to give a recompense, it says here. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, which we were quoting earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the resurrection of the just. We're going to be raised up to be with him. That's part of the first resurrection. And the the rest of the commentary on the first resurrection you find in 1 Corinthians 15 and then over in Revelation chapter 20. Where that is discussed and put into perspective there with the view of the coming of the Lord to reign on the earth for a thousand years. But the point is this. The recompense comes at a time when your life and your service are over. Only one life. Who remembers it? It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last 1 Peter 4.17 for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? And if I was sitting here tonight listening to this and I wasn't sure that I had obeyed the gospel, I would be afraid to walk out those doors. Because he says here that the judgment 
is going to be a severe thing. The judgment is a thing that gives pause to one. That makes one think and contemplate his life. And that's what we need to do instead of rushing madly on, guided by our impulses. We say it in Spanish. We say people are poco reflexivo. They don't think much. They just act. They don't think really about what they're doing. Poco reflexivo. Es una persona impulsiva. They're, they're impulsive. They just rush along through life. Whatever pops up, they do. Whatever comes into their mind, they say. They just live that way. They don't stop and think. They don't analyze. They don't plan. They don't make a careful choice. And in light of the judgment seat of Christ, I would make a careful choice tonight. Because what's to say that you'll ever have another opportunity? What's to say we'll be here on Wednesday? What's to say we'll be here on Sunday? It's going to happen. A lot of evangelical churches are probably going to be open the first Sunday after the rapture. A lot of people will be gone, thank the Lord. But there are going to be places here and there around the world where people are going to go turn out and try to go to church probably. Just like they always did. Because they just didn't get it. Tonight we want you to get it. It is time has come, he says. The judgment must begin at the house of God. Because how can God judge the world if he doesn't judge his own house? How can God bring seven years of tribulation and judgment upon the world preparatory to the coming of Christ to reign on this earth? How can God deal with sin and rebellion and selfishness on this earth if He doesn't deal with what's in His own household? Judgment must begin at the house of God. It must. Do you think, and if you do, you are full of vain thoughts if you think for one moment that Christ will pass over the carnal behavior and worldly priorities of so many people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, that he's just going to pass over that and herd everyone into heaven and and give everyone a balloon and a piece of cake, and that's it? Is that our idea of God? Do we think he's like an old man sitting in a rocking chair out on the front porch, and he's watching his grandchildren and he's rocking and they're out there playing and fighting and one's hitting another one with a stick and the other one's whining and he's just going, oh, well, boys will be boys. And he thinks it's cute. He's an old grandfather sitting in his rocking chair. Is that what we think? My Bible says judgment must begin at the house of God. And I want you to know that I take those words seriously. I take them very seriously. Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Don't you think for one moment that a Christian, just because he's saved by grace, doesn't know anything about fear, the fear of God? Amen. That, awe, that sense of awe, deep awe, that trembling desire to do what pleases him and his best and not to... To draw out his disapproval over anything. The fear of his reproach. And the desire to have his smile and his blessing and his favor. 
Remembering what he did for me. Like the hymn writer said, after all he did for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him forever? Completely. After all he's done for me. Judgment must begin at the house of God. It first will begin with us. And someone said that that's why the tribulation will take seven years. This is not um, probably the most accurate of statements, but never mind. They said it will take, uh, the tribulation will take seven years because at that time, while God is judging the earth, at the same time he will be trying to sort out all the tangled mess that Christians have made. In heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, he'll be unraveling all of that tangled mess we made of life and judging and setting matters straight and setting matters straight on earth and then the Lord will come. I'm not sure that's exactly the order. And I'm not sure we'll take the omnipotent and omniscient God seven years to deal with us all. But I'll tell you this, he's got a job on his hands. We sure can make a mess of life. It's so simple. He took all the guesswork out of it. He wrote it all down for us. And yet we can think of a thousand and one reasons why not to do anything that he said in his word. Let's just take one example. Read my lips. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, was there a big word in there anywhere? Hard to understand. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Next verse. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I believe the biggest words in there are treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And William McDonald says, people read those verses. He said, as far as most evangelicals are concerned, those verses might as well not even be in the Bible. People read those verses and immediately their mind, clever thing that it is, thinks of 64 theological reasons why they don't have to do what that, why that verse doesn't mean what it says. Well, the judgment seat is coming. And the Lord knows what we did with our treasures. Where we laid them up. The Lord knows. You worry about the IRS knowing. About the government knowing. Never mind about that. You don't know anything about being audited. You don't know nothing. Like we say in the South. Until you've been audited by God. Do not lay up. For yourselves treasures on earth. The judgment seat is coming. That's just one small example to to bring us to focus a little bit on the importance of what we're saying. That God has told us in his book so many things about what he wants us to do in every area of life. And we pay so little attention to it. And it's all going to be judged. He's not going to judge our sins, but he's going to judge our service. Revelation 19 and verse 8 says, When they appear, 
when we appear, better said, there in glory with the Lord. Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be clothed or arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And what is the, the New American Standard puts it a little bit different, doesn't it? Thank you. Say it louder so everybody can hear you. The righteous acts of the saints. Remember that verse we quoted, Ephesians 2.10? God hasn't forgotten it. Some of us have, but God hasn't. The righteous acts of the saints. That, that white clothing is a sign of God's recompense, the reward, and the honor that He gives to those who lived a righteous life down here on this earth. It, that is the result. They've come out of the judgment seat of Christ and now they're arrayed in white linen. Now they're dressed with their recompense. Boy, we're going to have enough cloth to cover ourselves? I'm saying that in a figurative sense, of course. But it does make us think, doesn't it? And you see, the righteous acts of the saints are going to carry through to heaven. Some things will never make it into heaven. We brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. No trailers, no U-Haul trailers behind the hearse. No storage areas. You store it, you lock it, you store it. None of that in the cemetery. No pensions. But there is something that gets to heaven from this earth. The righteous acts of the saints. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May God help us to get free from this stupor of our society that causes us to live and behave as if there were no judgment seat of Christ. As if it did not matter to God how I live today, what choices I made, what things I did and what things I didn't do. As if it didn't matter to God. As if the only thing God cared about were that, was that day when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior and my sins were forgiven. And after that, it's just kind of like, well, I've got it in my pocket here somewhere. My, uh, oh, there it is, my get out of jail free card. So that's it, you know. You get saved and you get your ticket punched. That was a good point, Dean. Or you get your get-out-of-jail-free card and that's it. You just keep it and then one day you get to heaven and you present it and you get in the gate and that's it. And that's all. And, And let's not be too legalistic. Ooh. There's that monster rearing up his ugly face again. Legalism. Telling people what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. Is that legalism? Well, some people think it is. And some people, when you preach obedience to the word of God and to the commandments of Christ, and when you bring that out and insist on it, people say, oh, they're real legal there. They're legalistic, or they say they're a cult. 
And then you spend the rest of your time trying to get the name off of you that they hung on you. That's what the devil wants. It's not legalism to obey Christ. Paul said that he was not under the law, but that he was not without law, but under the law to Christ, under the law of Christ. We are under the law of Christ. In the book of James, we're told that God's word is the the perfect law. The perfect law. We're told in Romans 6 that we're his servants, that we're his slaves. We're supposed to do what he says, live as he wants. And that means in practical terms, if we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us ought to consult him and his word every day. We ought to be sure that every decision that we make is in agreement with his will. We ought to try to the best of our ability to live to please God because one day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as we go on in the other nights this week, we're going to see what a judgment that's going to be. May God help us to take it seriously. Because when that day comes and when we stand before that judgment seat, life is done and opportunities are past. And it will be too late to rectify any mistake made. Right now, tonight, right now, it is not too late. And maybe without even going any further... In our studies this week, maybe someone here is already aware, maybe by the Spirit of God, bringing something to your mind, touching your heart in a certain area, maybe you're already sensitive, you're already aware of something in your life that needs to change. Just the mere thought of going to the judgment seat of Christ makes the sensitive, the thinking Christian review his or her life. And as the Spirit of God uses His Word in our hearts, sometimes these things pop up, don't they? And immediately something that the Lord wants to deal with us about comes to mind. Well, if that has happened tonight, and it's certainly not because I know anything about it, but God does in His Word and by His Spirit. And the best thing to do, whatever it is, is to start right now, if you haven't done it before, and say, I am going to be super sensitive To the will of God from now on. I've lived enough years of my life. I don't care if it's 12 or 14 or 18 or 80. I've lived enough of my life for myself. That's it. Se acabo. Finished. No more. Help me, Lord. To live like a person who knows that he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to stand there that day with joy. I want to stand there that day with consolation. Knowing that it it was worth it all to live the way the Lord said. I want to stand there that day with gratitude and say, Thank you, Lord, for showing me that in your word. And for guiding my steps and helping me. Delivering me from living for myself. And teaching me to walk in your steps. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. And we do pray that you will help us to take seriously the warning that you have given us. That we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may give account of himself before God. What a wonderful day it will be if we can stand before your throne on that day, dear Lord, and hear you say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
May it be so in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.